0: All right, you have your Bible, the Book of Joel, the Book of Joel, chapter two. <laughs> the book of Joel, chapter two. As you probably know, today is Ash Wednesday, so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at a little bit of the history of uh, Lent, a little bit of Ash Wednesday. We'll look at the lectionary readings. I know there's a million other things. I know we're kind of doing Bible geography. I wanted to be in the book of Obadiah, which connects to uh, what we're doing on the podcast for the 21 days and the minor prophets. So I wanted to do that. Um, there's always a million things that we want to do, but we're also working on the lectionary and the liturgical calendar. So obviously, we cannot skip this. Very important. So the book of Joel is the first reading. We'll go through the readings in just a moment. The the readings for this evening, the book of Joel, chapter 2. Then it's a reading from the second letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 5. And then it's Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, 16 through 18, and the psalm is Psalm 51, and if you put all that together, you get a good idea of what Ash Wednesday is about, if you do not know. But we'll do a little bit of of study, and a little bit of just kind of a little bit of history, and a little bit of idea of the basic concepts, all right? So Ash Wednesday kicks off what? Lent. Lent lasts for 40 days, right? Okay, so... That that So we're going to talk a little bit about Lent and the season of Lent because it starts with Ash Wednesday. The season of Lent is a period of approximately 40 days, excluding Sundays. Sundays are not counted in those 40 days, okay? Excluding Sundays. It is observed by many Christian denominations as a time of repentance, fasting, and preparing for the celebration of Easter. So it's a focus on repentance, fasting, and preparing for Easter. The early practices, the observance of Lent, can be traced back to the early centuries of Christianity, where it was initially a period of preparation for new converts... before them being baptized on Easter Sunday. So if you're a new convert, and you wanted to be baptized on Easter, you had to go through a period of being, be, well, fasting and preparing. All right, preparing. So there'd be a time of instruction, a time of fasting, and a lot of things that go along that line. Which again, and now we talked about this when we studied a little bit about baptism in the early church, right? And remember we said, well, that. If if you have to go through a period of fasting and preparing, that kind of eliminates what from being baptized? Infants. Remember we talked a little bit about that? Okay. All right. So uh, this preparation involved fasting, prayer, and instruction. So there were three things. And remember we talked a lot about some of the things they had to do. Remember? And then some of it were like, wait, what is going on here? Like it was... Put it this way, all the people who say, I mean, remember my main argument when we covered that is all the people are like, well, the early church baptized babies. And I'm like, well, the early church did a lot of things in baptism. And in a convenient, you threw out, uh, yeah, you threw out the nudity, okay? You threw out all this, but you still want to make an argument. Well, we baptized babies because the early church did. Well, let's go back and do everything the early church did when it dealt with baptism, You're not going to do any of that, okay? Nobody would get baptized, okay? I think in some cases, yeah, obviously there were some traditions who did that, yes. So then you would have to wait, especially for a new convert, especially, you know. Yes. Yeah, it could be a whole year of preparing, right. So, So that, so just, I just always find it funny, but everyone does it. Let's make sure we do, everyone does that. Everyone will say, I want to go back to the early church. And you'll be like, well, great. Let's go back to the early church. Sell all of your possessions and give the money to the church. Well, no, I don't want to do that. Okay. Hey, let's meet every day. Well, I don't want to do that. Okay. Isn't it funny how we always want to say we want to go back to the early church until... Then, then everybody's like, no, I don't want to. Well, then stop talking about it. Stop talking about it. All right. So, it, it dates back to the early centuries of Christianity where that's, that's basically what it was for. Over time, this is the, its development, over time, the observance of Lent expanded to include all members of the Christian community, not just the new converts, because at the beginning it was like, if you're a new convert, you're going to be doing this. Then it kind of expanded to everyone, right? They're like, hey, this is good for everyone. Uh, the, and, not just newcomers. The 40 day duration of Lent reflects the 40 days that Jesus spent fasting in the wilderness before the beginning of his ministry. So then it becomes very much linked together. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. And so we, during Lent, or, or the early church would say we, the early church would have said that we are going to unite ourselves, in a sense, to those 40 days. We will fast as he fasted, not obviously probably the exact same way, but we will fast. And then we will then consider and think about how we are tempted, our battle against sin. And those t- and those are kind of the themes that begin to emerge, which makes perfect sense, right? Uh, I, again, a lot of times when you deal with Lent or Ash Wednesday, people get all, it's Catholic, it's Catholic. Same thing some people will do with Christmas. I, my My argument has always been, is the story of Jesus in the wilderness in the Bible? Yes. Is it a 40-day period? Yes. So if we spend 40 days focusing on similar themes and similar ideas, I don't care if the Catholic Church did it, I don't care who did it. I've got a biblical reason to do it. Does the Bible speak of the birth of Christ? Yes. So celebrating that, I don't care which day you pick on the calendar. The issue is what I'm what am I celebrating? Am I celebrating the birth of Christ, right? That's the issue. That's that's the issue. Does the Bible speak of the resurrection of Christ? Yes. I'm not going to get caught up on when it's picked. What are we celebrating? And as long as we're celebrating those biblical events and thinking about those biblical concepts, the rest of those arguments always seem so frivolous and and doesn't, I don't know what you're trying to do at that point, all right? Other than just finding something else to argue about where, where we've already got plenty, all right? So that's uh, so it's a 40-day duration of Lent reflects the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness. So there's kind of the the origin goes back early church for uh converts to prepare for baptism. Then it developed over time to include everyone, all right? And here's some of the key principles, right? Key principles of Lent. Number 1, repentance. Lent is a time for introspection and acknowledging one's sin seeking forgiveness, and turning back to God with a contrite heart. It's supposed to be an an intensive time of examining oneself for 40 days, looking to see where things are not right with you spiritually, and then repenting, changing your mind about that, trying to turn from it. Really, just an, an intensive time of repentance for 40 days. Now, some people say, well, what good is 40 days? Well, it's better than no days. (laughs) <laughs> right okay it's better than nothing so if for 40 days I'm really focusing on that I mean we all need 40 days to look to our lives and see where, where things could be better right prayer uh, Lent emphasizes the importance of prayer as a means of, de- of deepening one's relationship with God seeking guidance and strength and expressing gratitude so in other words for 40 days you're spending a lot of time examining yourself and then I would argue this way the more I examine myself, the more, the more I should realize what? I need God, right? The more I examine myself, I know that I need what? God's mercy, God's grace, and God's forgiveness. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So really, the the time of repentance and self-examination should lead to prayer. And we pray to God about our sins and our shortcomings and our failures and our struggles. And maybe maybe next year we're going to be talking about the exact same ones. But at least it's a time to acknowledge and struggle with it. Three, fasting. Fasting during Lent involves abstaining from certain food or activities as a way of practicing self-discipline, focusing on spiritual matters, and identifying with the sufferings of Christ. Now, I know usually Protestants make fun of Catholics Because a lot of times Catholics for their 40-day fast will give up something, right? And it may seem insignificant and we (laughs) laugh at them. (laughs) Oh, that's so stupid. They're giving up chocolate. What a ridiculous thing to do. I I don't know why we always want to mock what someone is doing. If someone's trying to give up anything, that is, they're doing what? Denying themselves. And if you deny yourself anything, That's a good spiritual discipline because we are called to do what? Die to self, deny self, and not follow self. Now, does any of us ever pull that off in any significant way? Not even close. But guess what? You got to start somewhere. So if someone is doing something small, I don't know why we would mock that. What we should do is encourage that to, well, okay, not like giving that up. What are you going to do? Are you going to focus on some spiritual? Try to encourage it. Try to help. We just mock it and make fun of it. I don't know. I don't really get why people do that. I don't I don't really know what. Does it make us feel better? <laughs> hey, you gave something up. I'm not giving up anything. And I'm morally better than you. I, I don't really understand that. So if you give up something for 40 days, all you're trying to do is trying to put yourself in a position where you're denying what you may want to hopefully focus on spiritual things. That's the whole point of fasting, right? You're sacrificing food so that you will focus on something spiritually. It's not supposed to be done to make you healthier or to lose weight. That's the wrong focus. Whatever you're doing, it's supposed to help you focus and denying self. It's a we our our number one battle spiritually is with what? Ourself. So all you have to you gotta constantly fight. If it's something small, that's great. I mean, I'm I'm not saying it's gonna fix everything. It's never we're never gonna fix everything, are we? So, it's just something, I don't know why it's such a negative thing for some people, right? Next, almsgiving, acts of charity and generosity. All right, such as almsgiving giving or um, and generosity are also important aspects of Lent. Encouraging believers to help those in need and demonstrate compassion. It's supposed to be a time for forty days that maybe you 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 do something generous for someone. You give. You may give extra. You whatever you may do. You may support something. You may help someone. Whatever you can do. And that and once again, what is that? That's sacrifice, right? That's sacrifice, right? That's sacrifice. Right? That's 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 never easy. When it comes to money, it's never easy, is it? Because we want the money, and if we give the money to something else, then we don't have the money. Okay, that that's sacrifice, right? So you can see where the focus is, because the the point is, what was Jesus doing for those forty days? He he was going without food. All right, all right, so he was doing without. He was, and that gives. And and then what? What did he encounter? Temptation. Now, of course, he's God in the flesh. He's God incarnate. So obviously, he's without sin. But I think in some ways, some could argue that our battle with sin involves a discipline of self-denial. The more we can deny self and die to self, maybe the better off we are in fighting those temptations, which tells us to please self. Well, when it comes to generosity for 40 days, saying I'm gonna try to give more, give more for 40 days, that's, that's sacrifice. If I'm gonna give something up, food or whatever, that's sacrifice. So you see where the focus is. And then number five, spiritual renewal. Lent is a season for spiritual renewal and growth, marked by practices such as attending worship services, reading scripture, participating in devotional activities and engaging in acts of service. So in other words, it's supposed to be 40 days of really trying to focus on something spiritual. Now, the only bad part is we always know how that our best intentions, what can happen. Same thing can happen with Advent. You got four weeks to focus on the coming of Christ. And you wake up one day, it's Advent, and the next day you wake up, And it's New Year's Eve. And you're like, what just happened? And all of your best intentions go away. Well, 40 days, well, well, put it this way. Even if you don't accomplish it, trying to make those 40 days really dedicated to something spiritual, even if you fail, even if you're only to pull out 10 days, at least the effort is worth what? You're sacrificing and you're trying, right? I mean, look, our battle with our flesh and with sin and with just trying to live out the Christian life. We're ne- it's never going to be smooth selling and easy. So having a period of time is a good, is a good thing. It's a good thing to have 40 days to, tr- to try on it, all right? So as this source says, overall, Lent serves as a meaningful time for Christians to reflect on their faith, deepen their spiritual life, and prepare their hearts to celebrate the joy of Easter, which commemorates uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And many churches, in many churches, you've got Ash Wednesday, which is tonight, right? Which there's very specific passages. You're dealing with very specific things. Then you've got the 40 days. And at the end of that 40 days, you have Holy Week, right? Which commemorates and remembers the passion of Christ, right? Remember, it says suffering. And during that time, what do you get during that time? On many churches, you get a church service Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, which is Good Friday. Saturday, in many cases, you don't have anything. That's where you're supposed to just be at home. Because Good Friday, typically, a Good Friday service, at least in a a liturgical church, always ends very depressing. If you've ever been to a, a Good Friday service, everything is draped in black. Everything's draped in black, and then the service basically ends with Christ is dead, and then the lights are turned off, you leave in silence, and then you wait until Sunday to hear the, the first words, Christ is risen, right? So it's supposed to prepare you for that celebration. So that means at the end of those, as you're getting close to the end of those 40 days, you're in church Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Supposed to be really intensive. Now you really so hopefully by the time Easter is over, or resurrection Sunday as we call it, since I don't like the term Easter, but uh resurrection Sunday, hopefully you can look back and go, Whoa, that was a that was a long 40 days, but hopefully I'm a little bit better off spiritually than when the 40 days began. Now that's what we all want. Doesn't always happen, but at least the early church was like, here you go. Here's 40 days. They handed it to us. Now what we do with it, I don't know what we're going to do with it. But we'll see. But let's see how the, the lectionary wants us. So there's a little bit of the history, just a quick overview. And um, well, let's see what we can find as far as the lectionary. We start in the book of Joel, which fits perfectly because we're doing 21 days in the minor prophets for the uh For the Sermons 2.0 app challenge. So here's Joel chapter 2. And they want us to start in verse 12. They want us to start in verse 12. All right. You ready? Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting. And with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil, who knoweth if he will return and repent, and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare thy people, O Lord, give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore, would they say among the people, where is their God? And then verse 18, then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Now we could spend a lot of time looking into the, um, the context here and everything about it. But the main thing we need to take from this is this is a clear call to repentance, but it's a call to repentance that's very specific. All right. So let's Let's look at this, all right? Let's just, I know we should just go to the next reading, but just look at this carefully, all right? Start with verse 12. Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Now, I don't know if we ever turn with all of our heart, but I think the emphasis is this. This is what I want you to take from that. This is an internal turning, not a mere external turning. Internal, not external. Okay. And you're going to see that as we go through the next couple of verses. And everybody understands an internal and an external turning. External, you can be like, I'm so sorry. I'm not going to do this again. And you can try to do, you can try to do things externally. But internally, you're thinking, I don't care about any of that. It's, it's calling for you to feel it, for you to want it, to desire it. That's why it talks about what else is talked about there. Not only with your own heart, what else is mentioned? you got the fasting, which would be external, but notice, well, no, the verse 12. Weeping and mourning. In other words, this is something that's internal. Em- emotions arise from where? Inside. This is an emotional Truly turning from an... And in, uh, so many times in our Christian life, we so many things we do, let's be honest, a, a good portion of the Christian life is lived where? Externally, right? We know what to say. We know the words. We know how to act. We know how to put on that. We, we walk around, I always use the term, our fig leaves. We know how to cover ourselves, put on a robe of self-righteousness. We're good at that. Sometimes inside we're nowhere close to what we appear to be externally. So sometimes we've got to come face to face with, face to face, not with what we've put, put forth to everyone to see, but what's really going on inside. And sometimes nobody wants to look inside, right? It's that closet where we've thrown everything in and nobody wants to open it. But sometimes we, we have to. It's calling for something deep. And then this is where we know, look at verse 13. Rend your heart and not your garments. Anyone can rip their clothing. Anyone can say, oh, I'm, I'm repenting, so let me tear my garment. That looks good, but it's of no value if the heart's not in it. Now, one of the, one of the reasons sometimes people criticize Catholicism for Ash Wednesday and all, is they say it's just external ritual. It can be external ritual. But let's make it very clear. Liturgical churches aren't the only one who can be guilty of external ritual, right? Anyone who walks into a church building, you can, how many times have you been at church externally, but internally, you had no desire to be there, no wanting to be there, and you were somewhere else? Okay, we've all been there, right? We've all been there. And so this is calling for something deep. And it says, turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. The good reason that we should turn and repent is because there's a God of mercy and grace who will forgive us. And that's where we should run to, right? That's where we should run to. So what what it, what it we when we start with Ash Wednesday, what it is a time to do is to look internally until we are so broken by what's internal that we turn to God and in a real way, not just in a external way. Does that make some kind of sense? And I think that this is going to be, I think this is going to be a, a, a theme that may emerge, all right? So we have that in uh, Joel, all right? Now, I, I know the Psalm is next, but it's not one of the readings, so we'll actually go to the readings. Go to Second Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Know then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Verse 21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we, may, we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, make sure we understand this. This verse has been misinterpreted many ways. We understand this is dealing with which theological term? What theological word should you put next to that verse to, to, to ensure that it's not misunderstood? Imputation. Imputation. He has made sin. How was he made sin? My sin is imputed unto him, right? So my my he, he is seen as guilty, even though internally he's not guilty, right? It's not like he became a sinner, but he's declared to be a sinner. And then that sin is punished on him. And then guess what happens to us? We might be made the righteousness of God in him. We are made righteous, not... Everyone say it with me. Not practically. We are made righteous positionally. We are made right positionally. Because internally, we still have a major problem. Sin. That's why we have to constantly be trying to repent internally. Because we have an internal problem called sin. Sin. So guess what? Ex- positionally, what are you? Righteous. Practically, you're a sinner trying to do what? Repent, be, and you're fighting against that internal sin. I, that, I, cannot, I, don't, I do not understand why Christians cannot comprehend that there is a positional reality and a practical reality. And what's the easiest verse to prove there has to be a positional and practical reality? What's the easiest verse to prove? There has to be a position on practical reality or the Bible literally makes no sense. What verse? What verse? It's quoted in every church in America 50,000 times a month, okay? And it makes me want to throw things every time they quote it. See if anybody can find, who can find it first? If, okay okay good if any man be a Christ he's a new creature old things have passed away all things have become new now that's quoted when churches quote that they mean that to be true in what way practically that's how they that's how most churches mean it it can't mean that because if it meant that what would that mean You would be sinless because you're new and the old is gone. I don't know why Christians quote that. I got, that got quoted to me probably the first night I got saved at First Baptist Church, Tuscola, Texas, or within the first week. Hey, in fact, I was, I had a memory package of scripture and I was told that I'm a new creature. The old gone is all new. And I kept struggling with that because the old wasn't gone. It wasn't gone. I trust me. It wasn't gone. Okay. It wasn't gone. All right. It wasn't. I. It's still not. After all of these years later. Right. I may. All, I may be just a few miles from that building, but the teenager who was in that building and the adult standing behind this pulpit—we're still both sinners. I know y'all may look greatly disappointed, but the same is true of you. So guess what? That verse proves there has to be a positional and practical reality because it says I'm a new creature. How am I a new creature? In Christ. In Christ, the old is gone and everything is new. Positionally, practice, practically, we're still the same old sinners with the same old sinful nature. Now, I can't speak for you. I don't know, but you go back to when you were first saved and where you are today You may not be committing the exact same sin, but there's very similar sins or same categories of sin that you probably still struggle with. And some will say you're not saved as they lie to themselves that they're better than you. Which anyone who ever gets into that argument, it always drives me crazy. like, why are you arguing with me and getting mad? I'm not telling you to go not live your Christian life. If you think that you can do it, Just go do it. And then just look at the rest of us like, you poor lost sinners. I'm so much better than, I." I think I remember a passage of scripture about that, right? I thank thee, God, that I'm not like these other people. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not an extortioner. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a fornicator. Who went home justified that day? Yeah, the one who didn't deny being those things. Meaning. <clears throat> meaning, the justified person was those things. I don't know how Lordship salvation doesn't understand that. The one who claimed not to be all those things was the one who was guilty because self righteousness is not the answer. All right, so that, that verse is very important. All right, then chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. I almost lost my voice right there. Chapter 6 verse 1. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee, and a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. All right. And so the point is, our hope in salvation is in what? That he became sin for us so that we might become righteous and not becoming righteous in a practical way. Okay, please remember, man, so many people quote that as if we become righteous in a practical way. That is the most, if that's the case, then we would all be sinless because his righteousness is perfect. So then we would have, so no, that's not what that is referring to. Okay, so now chapter six of Matthew. Chapter 6 of Matthew. Chapter 6 of Matthew. All right, so, and the Joel one, it's about repentance. And it's about internal repentance. Corinthians sets up how we're saved. Once we see our sin, how are we going to be saved? by looking to someone who became sin for us so that we can gain the perfect righteousness. And that perfect righteousness is not in what we try to do, but in what Christ accomplished, okay? So now what is Matthew going to do with all of this? Well, look at Matthew chapter six, verse one. Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your father, which is in Heaven. Now stop before we even continue. Immediately, where is Matthew going with? He's not the external, not the external, not the external, not the external. All right, and then look at verse 2. Therefore, when thou doest thou alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Verse three, but I. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father, which seeth in secret himself, shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shall not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Verse 6. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou, when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father which is in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Right? Then I want us to jump to verse 16. Verse 16. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites Um, of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. But that, but thou, when thou fastest, anoint, but thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy father, which is in secret, and thy father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. Now, if you take all of these passages, if you take all of these passages, we see kind of what the focus is. What is the real focus here? Well, I think it's interesting. It's about internal, internal things, not external things, right? And that the whole point, the whole thing is, it's not about putting on a show, It's not about being religious and putting on a show so that everyone can see. And I think, now, I could be wrong here, but think with me. I think this is interesting. I think this is interesting, all right? Now, I I could be wrong here, but at least this is where my mind is going, all right? So this is, you know, I I love just sometimes to throw out kind of a a hypothesis and then let people work on it. But I, I think this is kind of interesting, all right? Joel says, hey, it's the heart. Rend the heart. Okay? Don't, don't just rend a garment, just don't do the outside things. Okay. Then Matthew is like, hey, stop doing all this external stuff. Stop it. Stop it. Your alms giving and your fasting, stop it. It's not, that's not what I want. And I think it's interesting because Corinthians comes along and emphasizes an imputed righteousness, which I find interesting. Why? You can't see it. You can't see it. If Bobby, by faith, has been saved by an imputed righteousness, can I see that imputed? I know everyone claims. No, no, no. If Bobby is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, you can see it. No, he's saved by an imputed righteousness. I can't see it correct i i know that's i know right now people are going to be getting all mad at me in the internet i mean tr- look look we we already know 2023 a lot of people got mad in this church about the whole subject but you know what i can't help i, I i'm not i'm not going to back down from this because it's just a th- I, like my my thing is if i'm not going to go with an imputed righteousness concept i'm going to a roman catholic church i'm not going to play pretend i'm not a catholic when i'm teaching catholicism I've said it so many times. My whole epiphany came by going to a Catholic university and they themselves saying, you're teaching Catholicism better than we are. And then you're like, well, I got two choices. Be a Catholic or go back to the Protestant Reformation. And what was the whole Protestant Reformation arguing? Imputed versus infused. It's literally in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which has been the confession of faith in this church from pretty much the beginning. And yet you try to emphasize the imputed and then someone gets mad and they're really arguing for the infused. I'm like, that goes against the very confession you said you believe when you were a part of this church. Like, it makes no sense to me. Like, Yeah, you can tell I can get fired up about this. But that's the whole point. an imputed righteousness... Can you see it? Let me state that again. Can you see an imputed righteousness? You cannot, because if you could, it wouldn't be imputed. Imputed doesn't change you. I know that that is anathema to most people listening, but it's infused. If it's infused, what should I expect? I, I should see it. Because it's been infused. And then the Catholicism says it's been infused and then you must cooperate with it. And then they are there to help support it and sustain it and feed it and strengthen it. That's why you need them. You can't go. You gotta have them because they have the sacraments. So the sacramental system is there to strengthen and feed the infused righteousness. Okay. Well, we don't believe that. That was Luther's whole argument. Is that we are, we are a saint and a sinner at the same time. Well, what does he mean by that? How am I a saint? And the imputed righteousness, right? I'm a saint because of imputed, but I'm a sinner because imputed righteousness doesn't change the sinner. Right? I just find it interesting that these verses are put together because it's like, stop worrying about the external. It's the internal, right? Well, guess what? Even when it comes to imputed righteousness, the external doesn't prove anything. Many in the last days will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? And 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 he says, depart from me for I never knew you. Remember, we had, well, if I remember correctly, I think it, I think this, that verse bothered Sarah as much as it bothered me. Because I I was like, well, wait a minute. That means even our good works doesn't necessarily prove anything. And everyone says, I'm supposed to look to my good works to prove something. Well, those people would have proved it more than me because they were literally casting out demons and doing all these mighty works in the name of Jesus and they weren't even saved. Therefore, works don't prove salvation. What proves salvation? Faith in the finished work of Christ. Now, do we want to believe that that faith sh- should produce some change? It should, we, because, because we change our mind, right? And now we acknowledge that this is a sin, and now we're trying to fight and we're battling. Joel talks about it, right? Repent. Rend your heart. Turn back to God. We're always trying to do that, correct? But guess what? We're going to do it over and over and over because the sinful nature is not done away with. I just think it's interesting the way these readings are put together. We have these very distinct parts. So, if we want to take some themes away from tonight, they're very simple. Number one, what we have to do is examine ourselves and see our sin. And when we examine ourselves and see our sin, where should we run to? Christ. All right? And then what we need to do is when we run to Christ is seek... An internal repentance, an internal emotion over it, and not we'll just focus on an internal repentance. We'll do that. So we should examine ourselves and run to God, and then we should focus on an internal repentance instead of just an external righteousness. And then number three, we need not be, we should not be trying to make a show of ourselves. We should not be trying to make a show. Sometimes I am baffled by, like, and Matthew when it talks about praying, I, I get so confused. It's happened to me too many times, either on on emails and even sometimes we've had visitors here who pull me aside like, "You didn't pray before the sermon, okay?" And I'm always looking like, "Okay." You needed to hear me pray before the sermon? Like, what was that going to do, right? What was I, what was I supposed, was that going to change something? If I'm going to pray for the sermon, I can pray anytime, right? I can be driving here and pray for the sermon. Why do you need to hear me pray for the sermon? Does it make the sermon better? Lord, and, and then so many times, we know what happens when pastors pray before the sermon, They start preaching the sermon before they start in the prayer, meaning they're not actually talking to God. They're already getting a head start talking to the congregation. And guess what? So many times, and now I do it just out of habit. Sometimes I don't even want to do it at the end because I will find myself at the end when I pray almost repeating what I just said in the sermon, meaning I'm not talking to God. I'm still talking to you, which means I'm not praying. So therefore, I'm taking God's name in vain. But if I say to people, oh, but I mean, so many times, I, I, whenever I do sermon reviews, they, they, they will read the scripture and then they'll pray. And so many times in the sermon reviews on, on in my podcast, I'll stop and go, he, he's preaching his sermon. He's not talking to God. He's not talking to God. When we pray, we're supposed to be talking to God. It's not supposed so that other people can see It's not so that any, nobody needs to say. I'll get emails. You didn't pray on your podcast. What in the world? Would that make you feel better? Like, what am I? It's like, everyone expects that we follow. It's like a template, right? And you're like, this is the way. Who says this the way you're supposed to do it? Now, if we pray in the church, we should pray when we're actually doing what? Talking to God. Talking to God. Not talking to one another. Not trying to look spiritual. Not saying, hey, this is the point of the service where you pray. No. Same thing with before a meal. If you're not really talking to God before you pray, don't pray before a meal if all you're doing is just doing something that you've been doing. It's just a, no. Are you really talking to God? If you're not, then don't do it. Right? Don't you hate if someone's talking to you and you can tell that they're not really talking to you? <laughs> that, that they're really, they're not really even focused on you. They're, they're talking to themselves or whatever the case may be. Or they're just doing it because they feel like they have to. And you're just kind of like, you know, you can just stop now because, you know, you're not really talking to me and I'm not really listening to you. So, you know, maybe we can just go our separate ways now. Okay. So, like, no. So we can, we've got to avoid the external trappings we got to avoid the external trappings, okay? So we need to see ourselves, then we need to turn to God internally, and we need to avoid external performance-based religion where we're performing for whatever reasons. And most of the cases when we're performing externally, we're doing it for what purpose? For our own self to make us feel good, seem good, Whatever, or In many cases, we're doing it to cover up what's really inside. Sometimes it's a cover. Instead of just being honest and going, hey guys, I don't know if you realize this, I'm a sinner just like the rest of you, right? That's far better to just be honest. But I think, that, I think in a roundabout way, again, I know I'm not saying this is what the lectionary had in mind, right? But I think it's fascinating that the Corinthians passage is about imputed righteousness, It's about imputed righteousness. Christ became sin for us. My sin was imputed to him. Could you see my sin on him? No. You couldn't see my sin on him. Now, you could see his suffering because that was the, you saw God's wrath poured out on him. You could not see my sin. Right? He wasn't like hanging on the cross, started cussing everyone out. No, he was forgiving people. He was still acting righteously even on the cross. But he had become sin because it was imputed. Right? And then by faith, his righteousness becomes mine. Guess what? If you could see if his righteousness could be seen in my life, what righteousness would then you see? Thank you very much. You would see perfection. It would have to be. So what people say, no, 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 no. His righteousness shows up our life in different ways. Don't stop. Don't start that because you are you're corrupting his righteousness. If his righteousness is showing up in your life, it's going to be perfect or it's not his. And it doesn't show up in our life in any meaningful way because even our good works. Are filthy rags. Why? Because they're tainted. They're tainted. Everything I do is tainted. Everything. And I, I mean, I can try my best, but it's always corrupt in some way, shape, or form. It may not show its corruption completely externally, because sometimes that corruption is where? Internally. That's why we need internal repentance, because we're fighting an internal corruption. So it's just interesting. I, I, I Look, I, I I didn't think about that connection about the imputed righteousness until tonight when I read it. I was thinking more of the external issues here, right? The external. Hey, hey, avoid the external. Don't rend your garment. Rend your heart. Hey, don't let the whole world know you're fasting. Fast in a way which nobody knows you're fasting. Hey, when you give, don't let everyone know that you're giving. Do it privately. Do it quietly. Right? Now, the, 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 it doesn't, that's not saying don't fast, and that's not saying don't give. It's just saying, here's the way to do it. You do it in a secret way because you're not drawing attention to yourself. And I think so much of our Christian life wants to be lived out. I, we talk so much about living it out externally, but I think we should be more focused on living it out internally where there's a genuineness to it. And if, if it's genuinely happening internally, then I think externally it will manifest itself in a genuine way, not a forced way, not a, in a produced way, not a, you know, and so many times I, when I hear, like even in preaching the prayer, it just seems sometimes so rehearsed or so for show and it just seems like, oh, come on, right? You know, it's like when you pray, if you're, if you're, if, if you're really talking to God, right what does that sound like like if i'm a preacher and i and uh my you know, you know what my public i know i'm going to get some major pushback on this but my public prayer should sound like what my private prayer because i'm just talking to god i'm not supposed to talk i'm not supposed to even think about you now i know there's books that would argue with me that public prayer is a very important part of liturgy and I'm gonna keep prayer for what I think it is. It's talking to God. So if I'm getting ready to talk to God, why do I need to talk to God right now? Like right now, when this sermon is over, why do I need to talk to God? Has anybody ever asked that question? Why do I need to talk to God at the end of my sermon? In fact, if I'm honest, you know what? Every preacher should pray at the end of their sermon. What do you think a, a pastor should pray at the end of every sermon? What do you think? That's probably what every pastor should pray is Lord, forgive me because I just tried to preach your word as a sinful human being and I probably either proved my own hypocrisy, I probably mishandled it, I probably didn't do things correctly. I didn't say things correctly. I may have said things out of anger. I may have said things in an incorrect way. I may have said things in jest that wasn't funny. There's a million different ways. Every pastor, the end of their sermon should be, forgive me for what I've just done. Because as a sinful human being, I stood behind a pulpit and tried to preach your word. And I'm probably condemned by the very word that I just preached. I'm not really to worry about you, but most of the sermons, Lord, help us see this, or like, look, like there's just pray, talk to God. If I'm the pastor praying, talk to God. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm not. I I don't need to talk to God for you. I get, and you could say I could do that, but really, it's up to you to take the sermon and talk to God about it, right? And so, I, I mean, I that, that's. <laughs> I can, I, I'm going to start a movement. It's going to be the new how pastors should pray at the end of a sermon. They should pray a prayer of confession, seeking forgiveness. I, I wonder how many books I'll sell. Probably none. Probably none. Probably. People, are think, probably people listening right now think that's the most ridiculous idea they've ever heard. But you know, the more I think about it, I think it's true. Because no matter what I do with the scriptures, I'm holding, sinful hands are holding the holy word Sinful mouth is proclaiming the Holy Word. Sinful mind is, procl- is trying to think about the Holy Word. The only thing I can do is, Lord, I am condemned by the very word I just preached. And I probably didn't handle it in a correct way. Forgive me. But I should do it seriously, not not. And so I don't, I don't even need to do it in front of you, do I? I can do it on the way home. In fact, I should. In fact, most of the time, if I'm especially by myself, that's usually when I'll talk to God, hey, that sermon was really trash and forgive me and hopefully next time I'll do better and maybe there'll be someone who'll come back the next time to hear me, right? You know, that's that's all you can do, right? I got really frustrated or I really got mad or I really got upset and 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 all I can do is that. Now, you may be like, well, oh, I wish you would have done that in front of everyone. Well, really, it's me and God that needs to talk about it, Right? Right? That's, that's really where it has to be. Right, exactly, right, exactly, right, right. Right, exactly, right. I mean, but, so if we're going to talk to God, everyone talk, talks to God what they need to talk to God about. But that's a good point. As, if I have to confess how I preached it, you probably should confess how you listened to it or didn't listen to it, right? Or what you were thinking as you were listening to it. Like, I wish he would shut up because it's Wednesday night and I want to go home. And I understand that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being honest with that, right? So that's, that. Ash Wednesday begins with this, ma- at least this year, the readings are very much focused on not the external, the internal. And I think we just need a more internal Christianity and not the external show. And if it's more internal and I can stop all of the showy stuff and just get real with God because I don't know how many times we're very real with God. Amen? All right. I'm not even going to pray because then guess what? I'll be doing exactly what I just said not to do. I, I can pray and confess, but if I'm going to confess how I handled this, I'll do it in the car on the way home. All right. So there is the, the readings for tonight and hopefully um, they were helpful and beneficial. And uh, there you go. God bless. We'll stop.